0: Radio five seventy KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle Sommelier Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio right now on Talk Radio five seventy KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Santa. Welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced
1: sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and the baron of Briskies. That's right, it's May. It's time for some beer. It's time to get out of the house. <laughs> Someone get me out of here. Oh, boy. Um, this has been the most incredible uh, human uh, uh, research and uh, project ever about how do we be alone? Can we handle it? Will the internet break? Will Facebook block me? <laughs> there should be a uh, i 'm tweet or i 'm tweeting i 'm uh, posting too much dumb stuff. There should be a little uh, facebook block on that because and I would be guilty of that i 'm showing pictures of food and wine and um, cocktails and bunny rabbits in my yard and just innocuous stuff, just to sort of feel connected to the rest of the world. But uh, uh, the horizon, we see it, the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is coming, and hopefully it's not a train. Um, but in the meantime, happy Saturday night, everybody. Hope uh, you are, um, well, still healthy and uh, getting in shape. That's been my mantra. It's like time to get my butt off the couch and start walking. And do I dare say sit up and push up? Ooh. Man, those sound awful. But that's the only way we're going to get that bikini body ready for our beautiful summer starting July 5th here in Seattle, which will be all down in Alki Beach. Uh, that's was my neighborhood. But um, anyway, I've got a real cool cat online. And uh, because everybody's online, we can't have guests in the studio anymore um, for a while. But his name is Justin Oman, and he is a um, wine professional. He works for Triven. Uh, Just importers uh, based on the East Coast. uh, And he is, uh, he's actually been around and and did something so unique that I wanted to share this with you. uh, And we'll let Justin uh, share this story. And Justin Almond, hey, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Hey, Christopher. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Um, I know we've, uh, we've met uh, several times throughout the years. We recently saw each other at the Big Bordeaux tasting the Union of Grand Cru de Bordeaux over at uh, the uh, Seattle Waterfront Marriott back in, was that January? February. Uh, yeah, I think it was the uh, end of January, I think. <laughs> That's right, I know. It seems so long it a long of a blur. It is a blur. Um, but uh, it was great to reconnect, and when we see those faces in the audience or behind the table, we, uh, we always smile. And I'm smiling right now because you mentioned you were actually pouring Sauternes, which turned me on. And, and the funny thing about going to these tastings is that everybody goes to you know the dry wines first. I saw the empty table, and I went to the sweet wines. So what were you doing there that day at the Union Grand crew of Bordeaux here in Seattle.
2: Absolutely. So, yeah, I was uh, just helping pour at the Chateau Coutet uh, table. So they're a premier Grand Cru Class A uh, producer within the, the Barsock uh, Appellation. Um, to kind of make that simple, they're, in my view, one of the best producers of Sauternes. And I've had the very good pleasure of forging um, a friendship and a relationship with Aileen Bailey, who is... Um, one of the owners of the the chateau so we met in bordeaux a few years ago and uh when it, she mentioned she was going to be out in seattle for the ugc events um it just kind of made sense to, for us to kind of reconnect and it kind of help help her out at the table so lots of fun and very blessed to be able to do something like that
1: very cool now that name you said elaine bailey bailey uh-huh do yep. they, they make champagne
2: uh, they don't, no. So the family purchased uh, the Couté estate in the 70s, wow. and they've been managing it ever since. So you have uh, Philippe, who's uh, in charge of all the operations at the winery, and uh, she's really kind of the boots on the ground with doing the marketing around the world and, and doing all the traveling and, and helping kind of push and promote the story of you know not only the, the Chateau, but also Saturn in general. Um, and uh, she eventually will will take the helm, uh, you know, in the future as well.
1: Interesting. So it's her name was Philippe.
2: Uh, no, Philippe is the um, who's it's gonna her. She's a granddaughter, so got it. He's in charge at the moment, and she's in the. Oh,
1: family. I see. Yeah. Okay, good. Because uh, I was gonna say when I was taking French class in high school. My French name was Philippe. <laughs> so I oh, gotcha. Yeah, in. you're like a team, right? Did I miss something here? Um, yeah. Super cool. I've had the chance to visit Sauternes, and uh, this was back in 1998. Um, and it was such a great trip. Beautiful weather, beautiful countryside, and of course, these mystical chateaus that you, you always read about on the label of a fancy bottle of wine that you just paid $250 for. Um, but having lunch there in Sauternes, I was really blown away, you know, just like in Rome, they actually serve sauternes with the lunch they serve, and we had grilled prawns and sauternes, and it just blew me away because nobody in Washington or nobody in the United States would be so bold as like, hey, here's your main course wine, it's sweet, but um, of course, the course and sauternes, it works.
2: It absolutely does. It's um, They're quite versatile. I think um, sometimes they get classified strictly as a dessert wine, which obviously they excel at, but... They, they're a lot more than that, and um, there's a, a tremendous amount of love and care that's put into to making those wines. I'm a huge advocate of of the region in general. I'm I've been to the region two different times, and I'm just completely mystified when I go there. I, I feel like it's you know the beginning of my wine career when I go there in terms of personal excitement. So it's kind of a fun place for me.
1: I like it. Mystified, no pun intended, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> that's pretty fun uh, excellent so uh, let's see so the area of Sauternes is just a is it it's sort of south southeast right it's over on the Saron river in that area you've got Bomes Barsac Prenyak and Sauternes the fourth four communes
2: yeah if you take the city of Bordeaux and you kind of travel southeast below um the Grave region and pessac legnon that's right down in that area so you kind of have a um, there's kind of a golden triangle um, that is kind of referenced down there so when you look at where Barsock um, the, the sub-Appalachian and the uh, Sauternes Appalachian sit they kind of sit like right in the middle uh, between like the Atlantic Ocean to the west, uh, the Garonne River to the east um, you have the uh, the forest down to the south and then the, the Sauron kind of separates Barsock from, from Sauternes so it's Really, a unique microclimate, and you know the main thing I think that really makes the area quite interesting is that the intersection of those two rivers—you have, you know, Cerrone being the cooler um, river—and when it intersects um, with the Garonne, it just—it kind of helps create the the fog and the mist and all the things that you need to to create the botrytis, which is kind of key to uh, Superior Saturn.
1: That's absolutely key cuz that's the transmission of the Botrytis cinerea spore which helps uh desiccate the uh the grape um and with a little a uh, was it a mold right is it a mold or a fungus It's a fungus It's a fungus, it's a fungus right a fungus. yeah Yeah so yeah. it basically dehydrates the grape but maintains the sugar and also changes some of the phenolics to to include um which which makes me think the UC Davis um, our friend down there who created the uh, flavor wheel there has to be one for just saw turns to be honest I think or for dessert wines in general because that's just a whole different uh, uh, un- universe of flavors and smells and tastes and aromas and things like that do you agree
2: I absolutely agree and um, it, it takes me back when you're talking about uniqueness um, you know definitely a a bit of a charmed life, but I remember my first encounter with Saturn was a a blind tasting of a 1949 Chateau Yquem, and it just rocked my world. I had, had no idea what this was. It was just so unique, so interesting, and it, it really kind of, I think, was the catalyst for me to just want to you know learn and explore and, and do as much as I could with with understanding what this region was about and how, how unique the things are there.
1: Well, it's very unique, and, and there's really like two places that this but sort of Petraeus Cineria um, has manifested into a world-class, iconic wine. Of course, we have the wines of Tokay in Hungary, which uh, use the Azu and the uh, ferment grape. Uh, but here in Bordeaux and here in France, in uh, the southern regions of Bordeaux, um, when was the first actually Sauternes wine created or produced or, you know, someone said, I don't care if all these grapes are moldy or fungacy, I'm going to use them anyway. When do you think that happened?
2: Well, the history is a little bit cloudy. Uh, So what I can tell you is that, you know, in speaking with uh, Coutet, because I uh, have a lot of knowledge about their chateau specifically, um, they started um, the first documented history of that uh, producer, I think is right around 19. uh, excuse me, 191643,
1: um, and I, I believe they're the
2: yeah. So I believe they're the oldest uh, known wow. producer on record within Barsak, um, but we don't quite know if there's things before that. There is a speculation that was being made before that, but um, you know, without diving super super deep, I haven't um, heard of any other proof that kind of gives an exact time and year. Uh, I, I think people. Do you speculate that it probably was a mistake, an accident at one point way back in the day, and then people figured out how to manipulate it and embrace it and and things of that nature?
1: Sure, and I know that when you ferment things, uh, even though there might be mog or material material other than grape in the ferment, it doesn't necessarily come out into the final press or whatever. Tell me, um, have you tasted botrytis grapes, botrytisized grapes, the grapes with the fuzz on it, the fur?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I have done that both both times I've been uh, in the region. And it, it's interesting how distinctive they are. There's just like a a unique characteristic that uh, it, as many people as I talk to, it's really hard to put into words in terms of what you're tasting there. Because it's, again, a, a fungus and it has its own set of tastes that aren't normally present um, typically in our, our foods and, and things that we drink and all that. So.
1: Did yeah. did it taste furry? Did it taste fuzzy? Did it did you find that there was a either a mushroom note or a, even a, a moldy bread note? Or tell me what that that tactile experience was like.
2: Yeah. Well, the first thing that you notice is if you're if you're biting into a grape, whether it's a table grape, and then you get into a wine grape, which you know typically is more concentrated and has less juice than a table grape. The botrytis uh, grape really kind of takes that to another level, to where you absolutely notice the the thickness of the juice straight away oh. there's a lot less of it and you, you do get a very earthy component it's almost like a um a dehydrated apricot type of um note to it and um yeah definitely kind of minerality to it but also for lack of a better term just kind of a, a certain funkiness to it that just really <laughs> uh, stands out you know
1: I like uh, you don't really
2: have like the furry sensation on your tongue um one thing that was you know, you, it's, it's, it appears furry and under a microscope, I'm sure it probably is, but um, it separates from the grape skin quite easily, uh, so it's not like it's coated with a you know a coating of fur per se
1: <laughs> It's not yeah. the Star Trek version of Trouble with Tribbles. Got it. That's <laughs> probably too old. For, I don't know if you're starting. No, 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 I get uh, it. I'm with very you. Very good. So uh, I'm curious too, um, because what we have, botrytis cinerea, is not just uh, a a grape um, plague or a grape epidemic. whatever you want to call it? But uh, a blight. Um, it also happens on strawberries. So when we yeah. when we are have that strawberries in our our refrigerator that we look so good, and the next four days later they got that white gray mold on it that's the same stuff isn't it
2: it can be, and yeah. it's, it, it's can actually, be. It, it can be it can be because there's there's you know the gray gray rot and the um botrytis can look similar um so it's really uh, as far as strawberries go I, I don't know which one may be more prevalent but that's one of the things that they really look for when they're they're doing the harvesting the picking and the sorting is distinguishing is this gray rot or is it botrytis because they do have some similarities with how they look
1: Sure, I think it's called Perispona, is that right? Cuz we've got the odium, which so. is the powdery mildew and then we've got the Perispona, which is the gray. Uh super yeah. fun speaking with Justin Omond, who is uh the head wine buyer for uh you said what's the name again? Trivan Vine tri uh, Trivan
2: Imports. Yeah, Tri-van we're, Imports. we're out of New York uh, just in uh, New Rochelle just outside of uh, uh New York City.
1: Are there any uh containers on the water right now heading our way? Uh always. Oh always. good. Um
2: yeah, so there's been uh you know definitely things in the mix in terms of when we started getting tariffs in the wine industry. You know, there's a we had some 25% tariffs that were applied to certain wines coming out of in Europe. Um and then we've had all the uh, unfortunate events around the world. So it's made it more tricky, but good news is people are still excited about wine, they're still buying wine, and we have Containers still, still flowing.
1: Buying wine in more droves than ever, which is good for the wine industry. Hey, folks! I've got Justin Almond, who is a really cool cat. We're going to talk about his time in Turns when we come back here on Happy
0: Hour Radio. <laughs> He's live, he's local, he's all Northwest. Lars Larson, weekdays noon to three. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI, want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan.
1: All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back to round three. I've got three glasses in front of me, but (laughs) none of them are saw turns. And uh, that's how it goes. And You're stuck in the studio. You just try to make fun. You have interesting conversations with uh, people you've met throughout the years. And uh, one of those cats is Justin Amend, who is, uh, or Amon, who is uh, the head wine buyer for uh, Triven Wine Corp and, uh, out of New York. Uh, but we're talking about his personal experience, uh, what kind of inspired him to get in the wine business. Now, Justin, you actually uh, worked a harvest in Sauternes, right? I did. So I, I
2: spent uh, the 2019 Harvest uh, had quite a bit of time over at uh, Chateau Coutet, the Sautern producer.
1: All right. Well, what year was this?
2: Uh, This was back in October of last year. So the wines (laughs) are not out yet. Um, So you and I had just uh, went out and tasted the the new release of the 2017 uh, Sauternes at the UGC. Oh, so is that it'll 17? Be, Gosh. Yeah, it'll be a little bit of time before we, we get to, to the 19 as far as out to the, the public to taste.
1: Now, let's talk about uh, the grapes and Sauternes. First of all, they have three primary grapes. It's, uh, I'll say Semillon first, right? Semillon, Semillon Blanc, and Muscadel. Uh, what does Chateau Coutet typically grow? What's their blend, their sapage, their uh, assemblage? Yeah,
2: so they actually grow all three, um, so it's a little bit of a um, a rare feat to have the producers, including Muscadelle. It has been kind of growing out of favor a bit because it's a bit of a nuisance and, and tricky to grow. But uh, Coutet is, if I recall correctly, I think they're 75% Simeon, um, 23 or 24% Sauvignon Blanc, and the rest is Muscadelle.
1: Right on. And, you know, let's talk about those grapes particularly. Why are white grapes grown this far in Bordeaux? I mean, we think about Bordeaux, we always think about the Bordelais, the Red, the Cab Merlot, uh, Petit Verdeau, Malbec, uh, even the Carminier, if you will, but that's kind of gone. But um, why, is, why white grapes down there by the river?
2: Well, I think you have this really unique microclimate there. Um, we had talked a little bit about you get uh, really intense humidity and fog uh, typically in the mornings, uh, that blows off after lunch if things go as uh, they would hope, and you get quite warm afternoons. So uh, I don't. I think there a long time ago there was perhaps you know an attempt to grow everything there, but typically getting botrytis on red grapes didn't uh, yield the best flavor profile. So I think they've learned over the, the centuries to stick with the white because it's a nice combination.
1: That's right. So the, the really answer is why do they grow white grapes down there? Because they grow best. And that's kind of the thing in France is, like, the, we grow grapes where they grow best, and those are the grapes. And um, go figure, the 1600s, they, they actually figured out that that this funky Fungus or mold or whatever it was, they didn't know at the time. Actually, improved the wines to a degree. Now, let's talk about your harvest situation. What what day did you get there, and what day did you start first? When did uh, Botrytis arrive in the vineyard?
2: Yeah, so um, I had to, I spent about uh, three weeks over in, in Bordeaux. So obviously, I didn't didn't uh, take the whole harvest. So I was there, I believe, right around October second, um, and. Got back, I think, uh, around the 23rd of October. So when I had got there, uh, the first day that I have, had planned to arrive there, I was um, supposed to just kind of hang out and actually have a little bit of fun at at the chateau before we started doing some work. <laughs> and I <clears throat> I got my car rental. I showed up at the, the chateau, and uh, they grabbed my bags for my room to stay there at the estate. And they said, uh, here, here, put on uh, this jumpsuit we're actually going to go out to the, the vineyards in 20 minutes because we've got a clearing, the weather's just right, and we're ready to pick. So they weren't ready for uh, that. but They weren't planning on that uh, the day before, but sure. they have to really kind of follow the weather. So right when I got there, uh, literally like threw on the, uh, the vineyard clothes and, and went for it. So.
1: All right, so what, you have this overall outfit. Do they give you uh, snippers? Do they give you a basket? I mean, when you are thinking about these grapes, the, the the key is not to to let the juice run out, right? I mean, isn't this an important part? I mean, you want to have the juice, the, the grapes, the clusters in, in best possible um, uh, uh, c- scenario or whatever. The uh, what? Yeah,
2: you, you really want to have. Um well, you know, one thing I didn't realize, and you wouldn't unless you're there, actually helping with the harvest, is how delicate these grapes are when they're they're in perfect condition with botrytis fully, in, uh, you know, infected on the grape. They the the berries literally like want to fall off the cluster if you just bump them. So the the process out there is uh, pretty remarkable. I've I've done some other harvests just in California um, back when I was doing some winemaking, and. It's very, very different. So it was very eye-opening with the fact that they have these tiny little baskets, um, and they have an apparatus on the backs of, you know, probably I don't know, maybe ninety people out there, and little shallow trays, and then they can kind of stack them up on their back so that you have basically flat clusters, if you would, line in each tray without other clusters on top of it.
1: I see. So they don't uh, crush, right.
2: Yep. And then at the very bottom of that that uh, setup they have a, a very shallow pan that can collect all the juice from any grapes that would have dripped through. So the the difference <clears throat> that I noticed is the amount of work out in the vineyard to do the selection and the care is much greater than anything I'd experienced um, domestically for, for harvest, where typically you're you're clipping bunches, you get into the winery, and then you start doing your work. A lot of the work is done actually out uh, in the vineyard before it ever comes into the shea.
1: Wow. Well, so basically, we have these layers, and uh, do they the, everything's gentle? I I, I know you want to to treasure this. Every drop is a treasure of nectar, so to speak. Now, do they put them in a stainless steel vat? Do they? Do you actually have to go do triage? What do you do? Is triage is down in the vineyard? I imagine, right?
2: Well, yeah, we actually have sorting tables that are set up out in the vineyard, which again I wasn't really expecting. And so, while you're out there, there is. Well, first off, I can back up because what happens is before you're even clipping these clusters is the expertise for these guys that do this harvest was was mind-blowing. Because they're going through, and you're not going to clip every cluster off of the, the vines down the row, and away you go.
1: Right. Why? Tell, to, well, let's stop. Tell us why that is. Yeah. Well, it's because you don't
2: have uh, – the, the ripening doesn't happen all um, altogether. Uh, and you also don't have the botrytis doesn't affect um, each cluster in the same way. So you'll have several passes to where they go back to the same vine four, five, six, seven
1: times throughout the harvest. And what do they call that?
2: Uh, I believe it's a tree.
1: That's a tree, right. So they go through all, they yeah. have all these trees, these uh, attempts, yeah. these tries, if you will, right? they kind of spelled the American right. word of T-R-I-E-S, tries. So that yeah. makes sense. Keep going.
2: Yeah. So you'll they'll go through there and, like, you have these guys, that, that they, and they typically have people coming back, the same people every year for the expertise. Right. Um, and they're going through and they're looking at the, the vine. There might be four or five clusters on it. They might select one or two. And then before they go and put it in the basket, they're actually sorting the cluster right there. So, um, you know, one of the things I learned is that you're actually, uh, if you're not sure, you can give the cluster a quick sniff, and look for any acetic acid that might come up for smell. Really? Acetic? And then you know that, yeah, because you'll get some... It's always a fine line between too ripe and too far. Oh. So you're looking to see if you have anything that's gone too far. And if you do, then the first attempt is to take that cluster and clip it in half and start inspecting, is the middle rotted out in a negative way? Um, is there things worth saving? Um, there's a tremendous amount of fruit that's actually thrown on the ground yeah. because it has the cluster isn't intact enough, even though there might be so, like a small part of it, that's okay. They want to have a majority of the cluster, um, viable in order to, uh, to use
1: it. Well, that makes sense. Now I'm, I'm curious, all this was, this has to be the most, uh, um, in-depth jump in the deep end kind of <laughs> education. Yeah. Is that right?
2: Well, I'll clarify to you. Like they, they're very particular about having the quality of the wine as the end product. So with me going there, um, I didn't jump in and start clipping stuff and going. I I, I got training. I, I had see, somebody okay. that was walking with me for the first entire day, like sure. checking everything I clipped and making sure that nothing got put in that was incorrect.
1: Right. Well, you know, you could be a saboteur. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, the the precision and the the uh, attention to detail was was uh, quite incredible.
1: Now, tell me, how did you make this uh, this entree? How did you, did you get invited? Did you sort of say, "Hey, um, I love your wine. It was the most amazing thing ever." Of course, that was Chateau de Chem. So, did you try de Chem first and then go to Cote or what?
2: Yeah. Well, uh Ichem was was. You know, well, you know, twelve, fifteen years ago, so that was quite a way that, that kind of got me started on the Saturn. Um, I got the invite. Like I said, we've I've, I've forged a relationship with uh, Aileen, and we we chat on occasion. And you know, when I've traveled to Bordeaux, you know, we've we've met, and you know, let's you know, let's go grab a bite to eat, that kind of thing. So it's just you know, really, really blessed and really fortunate to be in a situation to where she knows how you know crazy of a fan I am of. In, in general, so yeah, the invite was extended, which is pretty amazing.
1: That's awesome. Now you, did, you had to you paid your way, but they put you up. Is that right? They they fed you yeah. and had you work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a cool. That's yeah. A, that makes I'm technically sense.
2: you know a volunteer, so to do it. So the the nice thing about it though is um we didn't really talk about it. It's backbreaking work out there in the vineyard, which I'm sure you know if you've done any kind of harvest. Um, so the the good news is, is being a, a volunteer and, and kind of a friend. Uh, I could tap out uh, here and there if I needed to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so fun. Reminds me of that. uh, That well, that's great. Um, So cool talking with uh, Justin Oman, who uh, had a great opportunity to work in uh, harvest and saw turns. So we're going to come right back and jump into exactly uh, what that was like. More right here on Happy Hour Radio.
0: America first and holding the powerful accountable. Sean Hannity, weekdays 6 to 9 p.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI 1 and O weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle so will be on a great Saturday night. Time for round three.
1: And I still have, actually, I got three empty glasses in front of me. We'll have to fix that. But one cool cat on the line, his name is Justin Omond and he uh, is a, a head wine buyer for. Um, thrive Corporation Imports out of New York City. New York City. Oh, boy, goodness. Maybe I need to keep these glasses empty. I'm starting to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Justin, let's talk about... So tell me more about this harvest with Chateau Coutet in uh, Barsac.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, so we were just talking about uh, the amount of uh, care and attention to detail that they had you know, out in the, in the vineyards. And, uh, you know, w- one of the things that's... Uh, was interesting, it was just the, the sheer number of, of uh, size of the team and the amount of people that are doing what they're doing. So it's kind of a, a no expense spared thing um, to make sure that the wine is at the fore at all times. So I love the region because it's quite possibly the, the one area in the world uh, where it's really about wine first and profit second. Um, so it was yeah, really true. fun to be able to see all the care on that, that sort of thing.
1: Sure, I remember y uh Yichem actually didn't do a harvest, right? They so it's not about profit. They could have sold their wine and, and made it less of what they expected, but uh that's the benchmark of course, and um that was the uh, Grand Cru Classe uh premier Grand Cru Classe, I think they call it but there's it was actually classified in the eighteen fifty five classification, but didn't get quite the the accolades or the, the recognition that all the uh the Madoc wines did. Um so how long did harvest take for you, and, and how many acres did you have to harvest?
2: Yeah, so I wasn't there for the entire harvest. Uh, unfortunately, I, I do have to work, so that was the sad part, but I was there for uh, approaching three weeks, and Kute um, has the the largest amount of vineyard space uh, within the, the Barzak sub uh right around 38 hectares uh, that they own. So at the time that we did it, um, I think we probably had covered maybe six to, to nine. I don't know the exact number, but it's really about when the the areas are ready to be harvested, mm-hmm. and then you know once they're ready with a, a fair amount of fruit, that's going to be able to be uh, collected. Going back time and time again, uh, it's it's very common for them to to go through the vineyard up to even like nine times during the harvest to. To uh, clear out all the fruit. And the other thing that I didn't really think about was you have one more pass or one more tree at the very end to actually just clean up the the vines and make them ready for next year uh-huh. for stuff that got rejected the entire time.
1: So that's not sold? That's not like, hey, here's a negotiant or a, um, a cooperative that wants those grapes? No,
2: no. yeah, they're going to be dropped, or perhaps you can actually have the, uh, the stems and stuff that would be uh, sold off for distillation. at Maybe, but they're they're not used for anything in terms of winemaking.
1: Oh, interesting! For a little mark, a mark de sauternes, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm um, curious. So, yeah. w- were the vineyards laid out Semyon, Sauvignon block Muscadel, or was yeah. it uh, closest to the river with Semyon? Or, or when you saw the 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 mist, was it in the morning or at night? Tell me about that whole you know layout.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the the mist and the fog definitely comes in uh, really thick uh, early in the morning, and they're out there. Uh, trying to get most of the picking done when it's cooler, so you're not out there in the sun. Because uh, it's amazing how quickly these grapes can change to where, within a half a day, uh, would it would have been too long for you to wait to pick them. So I was just really impressed with the amount of precision and checks uh, that they're they're doing out there, like every couple hours on which blocks need to go, which rows need to go uh, to. To get into your your question about are they laid out uh, separate? Um, <clears throat> generally speaking, yes, but I think a lot of it has to do with the orientation of
0: oh
1: sure the wind, and right. it
2: also has to do with the soil makeup uh, in each particular area in terms of how they're planting. So it's uh, Mother Nature doesn't typically give us you know this whole you know two acres is going to be all even.
1: <laughs> parts like clay
2: and limestone it's going to be a bit checkered around so there is a bit of uh, movement to try and cater to that that I saw. You
1: no, know, it's always unique. It's never easy per se. Now, my recollection of Sauternes when I was there in 98 that it had some hills. Is this truly the case or is your are the vineyards of Coutet relatively flat? Um, relatively flat.
2: Uh, you do get more hills over in Bohm and, and some of the, the parts of Sauternes.
1: So
0: yeah, you, that's why. Sauternes
2: versus Barsac, you do yeah. have more elevation. The Distinction that that you see, uh, generally speaking, is a much higher concentration of limestone in the soil in Barsock, which tends to give you a little bit lighter, a little bit more uh, elegant approach, for lack of a better term. That also gives you uh, a little higher acidity. Right.
1: They talk about limestone being, uh, of course, in in Burgundy and, of course, other great areas, but it's about that acidity, that freshness, that that austerity, which uh, um, in this case, you have this unctuous, um, fungus that affects the grapes, that creates... Well, let's talk about some of the flavors. I think of honeycomb, I think of jasmine, I think of ginger, I think of saffron, maybe, but I, I think of basically candied ginger. Tell me some of the, the the aromas you get out of sauternes.
2: Yeah, I think you're definitely dead on. I think um, <clears throat> in some cases you'll, you'll pick up like honeysuckle. You can get some aspects of lychee if there's a, a ripe enough year. Uh, Apricots, to me, seems to be a pretty dominant... Um, you know flavor and aroma and then obviously you'll have things like you know vanilla and, and cinnamon and things that happen because you typically have quite a bit of long aging in new oak within these producers that are at the top of the heap
1: why do you think they use new oak especially for something that is so aromatic on its own why do you think new oak new oak is one of the the the, the, the actually it's a lot of wineries to use new oak down there
2: well, I think it has to do with the fact that you know, they're well aware that these things age for a very long time, and uh, using oak in the right manner just helps add complexity. And I also think it helps kind of hold up to the higher levels of Botrytis at these top of states, just to kind of give you a, kind of an interesting um, homogenous blend of things versus just fruit and botrytis. It kind of helps integrate, I think, better.
1: Sure, we think of vanilla, we think of, I'm uh, sorry, think of oak, we think of vanilla and toffee and, and mocha and caramel. So those flavors, those aromas, those notes would, would definitely contrast when we think about the dessertness, the dessert uh, um, realm of, of flavors and, and aromas. Uh, have you, sauternes, we, we think about aging sauternes, we know it ages because of the acidity and of course alcohol is a great age, but how long does have you had an over-the-hill Sautern before? I mean, I, I don't think I have yet.
2: Um, no, I haven't. Um, I've obviously had Sautern that wasn't stored properly, and it probably wasn't drinking its best, but it's, uh, it's a bit bulletproof in that sense, to where it's, it's kind of fun to where more apt to explore and try something really old, even if it doesn't have good provenance to where it came from, that your odds are pretty good. Um, I've had, um, I think my oldest Sautern I've had is back to 1914, Oh, wow. And that was actually from Chateau Coutet, uh, quite a few years back, and it's um, was at a blind tasting, and it really kind of stood out to me uh, as well. So that's probably like the two bottles of Snow Sauternes that kind of really resonate with me, and also why I really was kind of drawn to to this producer even before I met the Baileys.
1: Very cool. Um, Chateau Coutet is, is I've actually I have a pulled a bottle. Uh, for my uh, dad's birthday last month, and I had one uh, 2004, which I think was in my cellar. So excited to taste! I was excited to taste that. Now I'm curious: um, why is saw turns in a clear glass? Because you think about something that's going to age a long time, just like red Bordeaux, they put it in green glass. But why is saw turns in clear? It's a great question, and I don't
2: have the exact answer for you. The thing that we found interesting is we had opened a couple of very old bottles uh, while I was at uh, Coutet and over in Sauternes. And one thing we noticed, especially when you go back to the really old uh, Sauternes that's made in the hand-blown handmade glass is even within the same vintage, you see a variation with the glass in terms of the the slight shape, some of the colors were kind of more blue green, some were clear. Um, So I think it might be a bit of tradition. I mean, I think they definitely want to show off, um, you know, the, the amazing color of, of Saturn and, and let people kind of see its uh, age and, and mature, I think, is where that's gone now. But why that initially started in Clear, uh, I don't quite know. It's a great question, actually.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Well, we are a yeah. hard hitting journalist, investigative journalist here on Happy Hour Radio. <laughs> Speaking with Justin Omad, who uh, works with a uh, an importer of the New York uh, on the East Coast, and he actually had a chance to visit Sauternes last year in October. Uh, was it just October, or were you in September?
2: Yeah, I was. I was there in September, um, visiting some other other producers over in uh, Pomerol. But uh, Sauternes was for October. Yep.
1: Uh, super cool. But we're chatting about um his time at Chateau Coutet, and I've always been curious about. It. It's great to actually have someone who's had boots on the ground, who had. Uh, uh, sticky fingers in the vineyard so to speak and actually uh was very friendly with the uh the, the chateau owners which which makes it uh this being well this is coming from the justin's mouth so to speak and i'm pleased about it we have one short segment left i want to talk about the flavors of uh sauternes and some great vintages when we come back right here on happy hour radio
0: Turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby. The Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m., KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan.
1: All right, Seattle, time for our fourth and final segment. I have the pleasure of speaking with a pal, Justin Oman, who is the uh – a uh, New York importer, works for, uh, as the head buyer, and has been traveling the world to find the best uh, selections for your palate. And we had a chance to to talk about his time in Bordeaux, uh, Sauternes, especially last year in late September, October, actually in October in uh, Sauternes. So, Justin, uh, I'm curious. W- we read the magazines. We hear about vintages. What do you think is the biggest vintage differentiation or variation down there in Sauternes?
2: I think it really has to be tied to weather, for sure, um, Within Sautern, they uh, have definitely rules and regulations to keep everyone honest down there in terms of what they can and can't do for harvest. And they're really at the mercy of, of Mother Nature in a lot of ways. And um, in some cases, they really use kind of primitive uh, aspects to try to, to counteract any negative effects with weather in terms of frost. and and things like that. So I would absolutely say weather is, is going to be your, your biggest key factor.
1: Sure. When we think of weather, are we talking about we need great sunshine? We want to pretend that these white grapes are going to go for white wine production instead of uh, sauternes, petriticized. So are we looking for the best harvest or the best vintage up into um, regular white grape ripening, and then we're looking for something different, right? We're looking for fog and and, and, and fi- virus, so to speak, or, or fungus, Take me through that yeah
2: it has similarities to to white, white wine you'd find from uh, the nearby regions, but outside of that, I think you're looking at daily conditions and mm. it's an accumulation so every time you have a daily condition that that wasn't conducive for the best outcome, um, it really kind of layers on to you know where this is going to end up by the time you actually uh, source the fruit off the off the vines. so you're looking at getting you know close to your optimal ripeness. You're hoping that the frosts don't come at the wrong time. Uh, and the big, big thing, too, is you're looking at when the rains are going to be there or not going to be there. Critical part with rain, with um, uh, that affects, I think, even more so than any other type of dry wine is once it rains and you had planned to harvest or needed to harvest, now that, that uh, grape is filled up with water and you lose a lot of your concentration and it also – uh, probably wiped off a lot of your Botrytis that was sitting on the outside of the, the grape as well.
1: Right. I'm curious. You know, the vine is a very hardy vine. It has its own defense mechanisms. Is there a defense, uh, a natural vine defense to Botrytis? Um, it doesn't appear so, and it
2: seems that it's a bit of a symbiotic relationship that it doesn't affect the vine negatively um, obviously if it was up to the vine they probably would want cleaner fruit just to make more vines <laughs> but it doesn't uh it doesn't seem to really affect the vines I and mean, you'll have you know I, I think the average age of most of the vines in in a are, you know 40 to 45 years old and you don't see any degradation or any any issues with it being affected year in and year out with the botrytis
1: so uh you were there in 2019 and was that a good vintage
2: uh well it's it's Too soon to say. I will say that um, from what I saw, uh, I think Couté is going to be a spectacular vintage. Um, I do know that there were some producers that definitely struggled um, a bit. So I think it's going to be a mixed bag in terms of you really have to research your producers versus just getting a general vintage statement in this case.
0: All right.
1: Well, that's good. So, what what vintages from Coutet in the last ten years can you recommend as being uh, chili superlative? Great examples of of the the promise of that particular estate.
2: Yeah, well, I think within the last ten years, um, you can. Well, I'm going to go a little bit past. If you're All open right. to that, yeah, cool. Um, t- 2007 really stands out in my mind as is, is one that I've tasted that I think is is still not ready yet, but wow. incredible wine. Um, I also think that if you're looking at 2015, 2017, they're drinking great now. You get a lot more dominant and and fresh fruit. If you can wait on them for a number of years, I think those are going to be real standouts in terms of what's come out recently.
1: Well, it's interesting because what you say is that uh, you can certainly enjoy a bottle of Sauternes when it's youth, when it's released, but also uh, 10 to 20 years down the road. And I think that's the hallmark of any world-class great, fantastic wine. Would you agree?
2: I would absolutely agree. And, you know, if if I have uh, my preference, like I I always love to try and wait a solid 15 years to to drink any Sautern from a a top producer. I think there's a level of uh, layers and complexity and and integration that really honestly takes that long or more to, to get to
1: makes sense uh so patience <laughs> is a virtue in this case uh but if you can't you won't be too disappointed but uh certainly uh you wait for that treasure um Justin Amand with uh, uh try Vin- what is it
2: Triven imports. Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't
1: know why that's so hard for me right now. <laughs> hey, what a treat, man! Thanks for spending some time with me. Thanks for uh, sharing uh, your experiences and, of course, your expertise in the world of wine. I appreciate and joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks for having me. Hey, give me a website, quick, if people want to learn more about some of the producers you have and that, and they can just sort of check it out.
2: Yeah, so you're going to be looking at uh, the website for Triven. We, we're typically selling off to. Um, retail stores and to um, other distributors and such. But you can reach us at uh, www.tri-vin.com.
1: Fantastic. Hey, folks, hope you enjoyed it. Remember, when you're out and about, life's always better with a designated driver. Cheers!